Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Audrey Simons and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with my co-host, Audra Simons. Hey, Rachel. How are you doing? I'm great. We're changing it up today, recording on a Friday. How fun is that? Exactly. And the sun is out. It's beautiful. You know, got to enjoy it. What better to do than a podcast on a Friday? That's right. That's right. And guess who we have? I am so excited. Uh, today, we we welcome back to the podcast, actually, Eric Goldstein. He is the Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity for the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or better known as CISA, as I think most people know it. Uh, in this role, he leads CISA's mission to protect and strengthen federal civilian agencies and the nation's critical infrastructure against cyber threats. What an exciting job. Welcome. Welcome back, Eric. It is great to be back. Uh, so excited to be here on a Friday, and we are finally out of summer uh, here in the D.C. area. So hopefully after uh, this podcast, we can all go for a walk outside. Oh, that would be amazing. I, I haven't done that in months. <laughs> So, Audra, you're going to kick it off today. What, yes. what, what are we going to jump into? So where I wanted to jump off is, um, one, it's said that leaders in CISA like security so much that it's important that they put it in their name twice. So in that same rational, let's kick off with talking about CISA's first ever cybersecurity strategy plan that you're putting in place for 24 to 26, if you're happy to kick off there, Eric. I would, I would love to. Uh, there is, there's no first topic that is near to my heart. So, you know, it's been a, I think, really big year for cybersecurity strategies, right? So we began with the national cybersecurity strategy coming out of our friends uh, in the White House, and the Office of the National Cyber Director and the National Security Council. And that strategy, of course, really orients our national and even global course for improved cybersecurity, including how we really shift accountability for cybersecurity to those who are able to bear it. Um, our agency at CISA, of course, earlier released our agency's um, strat plan, which outlines how we as an agency are going to work across our partners to achieve our cohesive vision to reduce risks to both cyber and physical infrastructure. But we recognize that there really was a gap, which is subordinate to the national cybersecurity strategy and our agency strategic plan. There's a question of, where are we focused in our cybersecurity mission? And most importantly, how do we know if we're succeeding? So we were really excited to release our first ever, as Audra kindly noted, a cybersecurity strategic plan, which covers the next three fiscal years. Doesn't actually even go into effect uh, until two weeks from today with the beginning of fiscal year 24. And the reason why we structured it that way is because we're making some really ambitious, even audacious steps forward in this strap in this strap plan, principally because we are for the first time outlining measures of effectiveness that actually will show whether or not national cybersecurity is getting better or worse. And in many ways, whether we at CISA are making best use of taxpayer money, are doing our jobs in contributing to that positive change. And so some of these are really true outcome metrics, like can we in fact um, track progress in 
reduced impacts from cyber incidents affecting American organizations. Some of them are measures that we think are well correlated with those outcomes, like can we track uh, real adoption of our cybersecurity performance goals? Can we track progress in more quickly remediating known exploited vulnerabilities? Uh, adoption of our shared services, but really, you know, we are trying to, as they say in the financial sector, mark ourselves to market here and really hold ourselves accountable to do the work that we say that 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 we should be doing. You know, most of the content of the strap plan, things like drive secure by design, roll out effective shared services, respond and coordinate cyber incidents. This is the work that CISA does every day, but for the first time, we're putting on paper and saying publicly, here's how we're going to do it. And then one other point that I'll mention in the strap plan that I'm really proud of is the strap plan contains four principles. Um, a few of them are things that would be intuitive. You know, cybersecurity is a whole of nation, government, society mission. But there's two that I think are unique. One is our need to prioritize our resources to have the greatest impact, right? Because we know that the cybersecurity problem facing our country is enormous, in many ways unmanageable for one organization to handle alone. And so at CISA, we need to partner, but also prioritize. And so we make clear in the strat plan, the, the groups, the entities that we need to serve first, for example, those entities that are, as we call them, target rich cyber poor, and those entities mm. that are essential to national critical functions, and then finally, we note our principle of achieving impact or failing fast and the needing to be disciplined across what's working, what's not working. And if something's not working, celebrate a, pass, a, a fast pivot and move on to something that is. So could you focus in a little bit on some of the comments that you made around um, shifting the burden of cybersecurity to those who can bear it? What do you mean by that? Absolutely. So if we look at the really history of cybersecurity, a lot of the focus has fallen upon the end user enterprise, hospitals, small businesses, school districts to say, patch faster, um, you know, hunt for hunt for adversaries, make sure your users are clicking phishing links. And then when something goes wrong, we look at the victims, we look at the school district, at the hospital, at the water utility, and we say, how is it that you didn't patch that vulnerability faster? And we haven't looked at the technology manufacturers, the product vendors who are delivering products that were they designed to be more secure by design and default in the first instance could actually have prevented the, the incident from occurring in the first place. And so as one example, you know, whenever there is a widespread intrusion campaign, the first question is, well, how many organizations have patched the vulnerability uh, that is being exploited? And, and if they didn't patch fast enough, why not? What did that victim do wrong? Well, we know in reality, the velocity of new vulnerabilities is more than almost any organization can keep up with. And certainly organizations like small school districts, small businesses, there's just no hope. And so we should ask the question, well, why are there so many vulnerabilities to begin with? And are there steps that the product vendor could have taken either to eliminate that vulnerability before the product went to market? Or are there stronger default controls that the product vendor could have put in place to mitigate the likelihood of that vulnerability being exploited to cause harm? Mm -hmm. Certainly, this is not to say that, that enterprises have no burden for their own security. Of course, there's a tremendous amount of work uh, that enterprises have to do, but the accountability has been dramatically shifted 
towards the enterprise, and we think consistent with the national cybersecurity strategy, that recalibration to focus on technology manufacturers and product vendors is, is really what's needed. So oh, I, I like that. I like that. Sorry. In a, I, I do want to talk first. about the... Um, it sounds like a nice dovetail into the open source. Um, so, uh, there was the open source software security roadmap too, that uh, you've recently been talking about. Yes, that's exactly right. And and I think open source is a uniquely critical and uniquely complicated aspect of this ecosystem, right? Because for for proprietary software, you know, it is fairly trivial for for us either through guidance or through our shared role as customers uh, to ask major. To, technology companies to design and build software in a different way. It is a different proposition in open source when in fact we know that open source projects that underpin uh, everything we do every day across sectors are developed and maintained by volunteers um, without right. any expectation of, uh, of compensation, um, but who often are under-resourced to actually um, put in place the investment in security that would be expected of a commercial provider. And so, you know, what, what our goal is through our open source security roadmap is really act as a leading partner in the open source community to figure out how can we drive resources to those open source projects that are most critical to government and critical right. infrastructure sectors. Um, and then how can we look for points of leverage in the ecosystem? One area that we're really excited about working on are the intermediaries, the repositories, the, the, the package managers um, that are in fact how most organizations consume uh, open source packages and libraries. And we think that those intermediaries, as one example, can do a lot more to uh, remove malicious packages before they're ingested, uh, to nudge developers towards the most recent non-vulnerable uh, version of a given package or library. You know, it's remarkable that the percentage of versions of Log4j that are still being downloaded today, a lot of them are the vulnerable versions. Uh, and that's, you know, we can, we can, as a society, as a community, do better. And so we think that, you know, both by partnering with the community, by supporting the developers and maintainers who really do heroic work in building technology that all of us rely on, but also looking for points of leverage to drive positive change, we think that we can make progress even in this uniquely diverse ecosystem. So can we go from your kind of strategic plans to talking about some of the biggest cyber attacks that happened during 2023? Certainly. So, so if we if we start talking about kind of the June hack of Move It, the file transfer software, which is like the largest breach so far this year, that impacted more than a thousand organizations and sixty million individuals. What from that incident? What are some of the biggest lessons to come out of that in terms of you know how has that changed your thinking? How has that kind of influenced your st strategic plans? and things that you're working towards. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it is it is certainly the case that, you know, the the impact of the uh the widespread campaign targeting uh move it move it managed file transfer application, you know, had had real impacts for, you know, a a wide range of move it customers. I think there's there's a few takeaways that we draw from that campaign. The first is the extraordinary speed with which adversaries uh utilize new vulnerabilities to execute uh, intrusions. And, you know, it used to be that there was a window of of, of days, even weeks, uh, before a new vulnerability would be exploited, at least at scale. You know, usually you'd see some, some 
proof of concepts trickle out, you would see, you know, some some initial um, um, intrusions, but but it, right. it would be a bit before we would see a global campaign unfold. Exactly. And now we're seeing these campaigns unfold in hours uh, from the vulnerability being initially disclosed. Um, you know, the second is, you know, we are seeing adversaries, particularly ransomware groups, um, um, you know, focus on very similar types of applications. This is at least the third campaign uh, that the CLOP group uh, has undertaken, targeting very similar kinds of applications, doing very similar things. So I do think that that should cause us to reflect on how we harden those applications that we know are being uh, targeted by adversaries rampantly. And, you know, if there were three, there will probably be a fourth and a fifth where these kind of groups uh, look for other ways to to monetize uh, these these vulnerabilities, um, and then I think the third, you know, really without speaking about the practices of of any given company, you know, again does take us back to our our secure by design doctrine, uh, which right. is you know there there are you know as long as as humans are developing code, there will always be some flaws uh, that we missed before production, um, but we know that that we as a community can do better. And we know that a lot of the vulnerabilities that are so prevalent, whether they're memory safety issues, whether they are issues like, like SQL injection, you know, we know how to fix these vulnerabilities and we've known in some cases for decades. And so I think reflecting on the practices of the vendors uh, who we are relying on uh, so ubiquitously, you know, should cause us to take a step back and make sure that we're driving incentives in the right direction. No. And I will say on this particular, you know, incident with the CLOP, uh, Clop Group, I noticed that there's a $10 million bounty, yes, that the U.S. State Department uh, put out there, which which I like, right, because there, there has to be ramifications, there has to be accountability, and I, I know that sometimes, or a lot of times, that struggles, right, in terms of, you know, c- capturing the people that are executing these attacks because they live in the shadows, or maybe they're in a country where, we you know, we it's acceptable for what they're doing and they're protected in that way. Um, you know, do you see more of that happening in terms of accountability and, and bringing these folks in? Yeah. You know, we, we have to figure out as a, as a society and really globally, how to increase costs for these adversaries, because we know that, that, that for these ransom groups, you know, they are seeking financial gain. It is really purely an economic calculation. Exactly. And so the more that we can do to increase the marginal cost of a given attempted intrusion or a given um, uh, campaign, whether it is by by taking action against their their infrastructure, uh, seizing some of their uh, financial gain, uh, taking law enforcement action to actually take them out of commission, or improving our defenses such that their success rate uh, per target um, uh, reduces, you know, those are all steps that increase the marginal cost of a given campaign. If mm-hmm. we can ratchet that cost high enough, at a certain point, these groups are going to decide uh, perhaps perhaps ransomware is not the most cost-effective type of crime to be involved in. And that's really the future that we have to build towards, but that really mm-hmm. does require an all-solutions approach where we are focusing not only mm-hmm. on defense, but also on activities that impose cost on these adversaries in other ways. Absolutely. Particularly when I, I think IBM had estimated that uh, it's about $9.9 billion, something around there, that is the estimated cost to, to those affected by this particular attack. It's kind of staggering, uh, that kind of amount. That's huge. So talking on other kind of areas, like more with a focus on, you know, how do companies or, or large organizations recover 
from um, these kind of cyber attacks. So, so T-Mobile, they fell victim to two data breaches this year, which compromised the personal information and data of about 37 million user accounts. Now, I was one of them. I got a lot of notifications <laughs> just saying. <laughs> Excellent. You were like, I was breached. I was breached. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Eric, how, how do you recommend or how are you recommending and laying out strategic plans on how to recover when these things happen yeah you know without without speaking about uh a a company recovery from a particular incident first of all you know rachel i think you know well that that we've uh uh in many ways normalized uh yeah. these sort of letters right i mean yeah. we all we all get them you know exactly times a year and we say well at this point 2023 what do we do that's that, that's just life yeah. life in in the modern era um you know i do think that you know what we see increasingly is uh, sometimes, unfortunately, a crisis is the best opportunity uh, for a company yes. to really reinvest in and recapitalize uh, both its security and resilience program. You know, we know that ultimately cybersecurity is not a technical issue or a, a technical decision. It is a business decision, right? Yep. And and where we see breaches occur, it is almost never because uh, there was a there was a a um, at its core a technical flaw, right? It is almost always a business decision. In many cases at the time, a reasonable business decision right. that led to a choice uh, to not deploy a control, to uh, not conduct uh, security testing to an appropriate threshold on a product, to not deploy a security feature um, on down the line. And there, there are, are dozens of these, but you know, what these breaches offer, uh, you know, almost universally is, is a chance for the business to step back and say, as we think through how we prioritize and invest against right. the enterprise risks that we are facing, how do we think about cybersecurity? And unfortunately, because um, you know, truly impactful cyber incidents are fairly rare, you know, right. a, a, a fortunate fact overall, you know, in, in many cases, um, driving that business change by way of analogy saying, see what happened over here, you know, works to some extent, but in many cases right. it takes, you know, either a real near miss or an actual impactful breach to change that mm -hmm. business culture. You know, that, that's one reason why at CISA, we are so focused on speaking not only to CISOs and their teams, which really is preaching to the, to the very well converted, um, but also talking to board directors, talking to business leaders, talking to general counsel um, about, you know, how, what this risk looks like, uh, what the trend lines and the threat uh, that we are facing really are, and how now is the time to really invest in cybersecurity as a critical driver of business risk and an enabler of business yeah. success, and not solely as a technical or IT issue. Uh, and do you think, um, you know, you can't escape AI right now? I mean, it's 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 everywhere. And do you see that potentially helping people maybe accelerate some of that thinking? Um, you know, I, I, everywhere I look, it's security and AI, security and AI. What are we going to do? How do we do it? How do you regulate it? Uh, it's just such an enormous, you know, kind of a threat factor that is kind of squishy, right, with no defined lines, if you will. And, and how do you secure against that? But also, you know, the regulations, right? It's, it's, is that something that you guys are seeing kind of bubble up a lot? Absolutely. I think, Today? I think you know, probably every conversation any of us are in these days, AI comes in uh, uh, at least once, if not uh, dominating the dialogue. You know, I yeah. think, I think, Rachel, you know, you framed it as, as, you know, how do we respond to the threats posed by AI? How do we regulate or address the, 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 
few harms. It's also the question of, of how do we benefit? Uh, right. So I think, you know, as as a cybersecurity community, I think the challenge we face is to, you know, let's not let our conceptualization of AI risks be a failure of imagination, right? Let's really right. think through not only what um, what these uh, these models and tools can be used for today, but what they might be used for two years from now, five years right. from now, recognizing the extraordinary trajectory of innovation here, um, but also make sure that our operators, our defenders, our analysts are fully benefiting uh, from these tools. And, and already, even in the relatively early days of, of commercial AI solutions, uh, we're already seeing security tools um, adopt adopt mm-hmm. AI in really meaningful, impactful ways. Yes. And I think if we think through some of these strategic challenges, uh, for example, you know, products with, with insecure code, well, AI can be maybe the only way to address right. that problem at real scale. And so I think, you know, we are certainly uh, at CISA really excited about the pro-security benefits um, that that AI may have. You know, we are trying to work with the community to really think over the horizon about, well, today, you know, um, uh, GPTs can be used to write better phishing emails. Well, that's great, right. but what's it going to look like in two years from now? Let's think ahead right. of that. Um, and so, and so, really making sure that we are um, leaning forward in the benefits of AI while being really thoughtful about how we manage the risks. I I, I like your. I like what you said there, because it, it does make me excited, too, to think that this could be a possibility to help us maybe not catch up to maybe the attackers, if you will, because they always seem to be, you know, kind of so far ahead. But I, I love the idea of kind of, sh- you know, shortening that gap between the two, uh, you know, because ultimately, right, we want to get ahead of them. <laughs> and I, I think there's just so many opportunities for AI. I, I'm really, really excited to see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. So. I'd like to jump off here and start talking a little bit about Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Yes. Did you know it's the 20th annual, Eric? I didn't realize I, 20th annual. It is exactly. Pretty remarkable. Wow. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it shows you we we're we're in a long running. It's like, a long thing. game. Like yes. cybersecurity is not going away. <laughs> so, um. As part of celebrations for the 20th Annual Cybersecurity Awareness Month this October, um, CISA is releasing a new awareness program that shares four steps that people can take to be safer online. Eric, can you talk to us about that? I most definitely can. You know, first of all, you know, Cybersecurity Awareness Month is is really uh, a great opportunity to make sure that that we are not only talking within these same communities that we're always talking to, but that we are actually reaching out to individuals across the country from every walk of life to make sure that they understand that cybersecurity um, isn't just a technical issue that their IT person will take care about of, but something that really we can all focus on. And so right. our goal uh, with our Secure Our World um, uh, rollout uh, this, this October is really to focus on a few simple things that all of us can do. Uh, steps like making sure that we're using strong passwords, ideally managed by by a password generator, that we're using uh, multi-factor authentication, ideally the phishing-resistant kind, um, that we know how to, of course, recognize and report phishing emails, and that we're making sure that the software we're running is updated and that we have auto-update on. I think one exciting piece here as well is that we're also, because everything we do here is pushing secure by design, um, we're also including a bit of a ask your ask your vendor uh, aspect to this. Because I think all of us, if we think through those four areas, you know, one thing that will pop into our heads is, oh, 
my bank doesn't offer multi-factor authentication or, oh, you know, I, I want to use a strong password, but my, my doctor's office lets me use, you know, ABC123. And those are all things that we need to drive a grassroots movement to say, you know, if your provider is letting you use ABC123 as a password, if your bank or your retailer isn't offering an option of multi-factor authentication, ideally by default, if you're using a product that doesn't enable auto-update, ask why. And right. if enough of us ask that question, why? That's how we really drive a cultural change to say, you know, I don't even, I don't even want the option to use an insecure password. I don't want the option not to turn on MFA. I don't want an option to have to worry about finding the the silly auto update radio button. I want all that to be done by default every time. Right. And the less that we can push down to everyday users, and the more that we can have done for us, that's how we really get to that future where our world is demonstrably more secure. I, I like the kind of the speaking out part, because I have to say, I, I have some doctors that send me links, text messages, link to pay. And I'm like, but you can't log into the portal to do it. You have to pay only through this link and text message. And, and Eric, I'm quite nervous to click on that link. <laughs> so I think it's it's wonderful, right, that you absolutely have to have these initiatives, because I, I think a lot of organizations think that they're kind of modernizing, but not really thinking about um, you know all the vulnerabilities that could come come with that, right? It's, it's, but again, security by design. I love that. You know, how, how do we make that just everyday standard practice in what we do? And I think, you know, if we think even about multi-factor authentication, you know, for many people carrying around a hardware token, you know, might be more than they're going to do, but, you know, having a, a, um, a soft token authenticator app on your mobile device isn't actually any harder uh, than using uh, SMS uh, authentication, and it's right. much more secure. And frankly, it is fairly trivial to implement. And so, you know, we'd love to get to a world to say where there is just an understanding that if you're if your provider, doctor's office, bank, what have you, isn't providing you with these features, they are not securing your information. And the more that we can drive that from the bottom up, we think that's going to drive some really important change. I totally agree. I have to admit, I have like three or actually no, four different authenticators on my phone for different services. Yeah. But a lot of that's work related. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, so I, I do want to be mindful of, of time. So is um, I, I'd love to talk a little bit more, though, about the uh, Secure Our World campaign, because that sounds very exciting what you're kicking off there. Um, and it's kicking off, uh, what, in the next couple of weeks uh, as we kick off Cybersecurity Awareness Month? You know, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, what we had a, a realization about here at CISA is Cybersecurity Awareness Month is great, right? It is our focus time, four weeks of the year. You really drive the message about the importance of cybersecurity across ideally every corner of our country and even around the world. Um, but it's not enough, right? right. And, and you know, we really need a sustained year-long campaign to keep driving the message. And so as you noted, it, this is kicking off uh, in Cybersecurity Awareness Month, but it really is going to be our national scale campaign where our goal is to have that sustained message across different mediums, different audiences, different partners to make sure that ideally, you know, we are not just making this a moment, we're making it a movement. Um, Love it. And we can keep driving not only that adoption of the right practices for every American, but also, as I mentioned, make sure that every American is asking the right questions and really conveying the point that you have a right to be secure. And if your provider, your vendor is not um, giving you uh, that right, you should ask why. 
Yeah. I love that. I like, I want to end on that. It's not just a moment. It's a movement. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> I also like the fact that you have a right to be secure. I love that too. Yes. Cause I don't know that people think that way. They don't. Yeah. I don't believe they do. They, they, they absolutely don't. And I think, you know, you know, to our prior uh, point about we all receive these data breach letters, you know, once once a month and throw them in the trash. You know, we have we have normalized this environment of insecurity, and right. there is work that government can do to help drive change. There's, there's work that we can do to drive change through procurements, but really, it's it's got to come from the millions of people who are using online services every day to really understand that. We could live in a different world. We could live in a yeah. world where we have more trust and security in the products we use every day. But to have that world, we have to ask for it. That's great. Yeah, take the power back because it's in our hands, right, to chart our destiny. That's I think that's great. fantastic. Uh, well, Eric, thank you so much for joining us again on the podcast. This has been such a great conversation. I'm so excited for the kickoff of your, your campaign as well. I think it's such an important movement, and uh, I look forward to following it throughout the year and, and how it expands and, and as folks kind of you know get on the program, uh, so to speak. This is absolutely needs to happen, and, and it's such a great time to start making that happen. And on to the next 20 years of Sensibility Awareness Month. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. Exciting to think where we're going to be in 20 years. So to all of our listeners, thanks again for joining us. Uh, and until next time, stay secure. Thanks for joining us for the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher.